Good morning. Our scripture for today comes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. And it says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Well, good morning. Good to see you guys. It is so good to start our week in worship, start our holiday weekend in worship. It's a holiday, and we get to celebrate together as a church family. I have learned to love holiday weekends. A lot of churches get kind of weary about holiday weekends because sometimes the attendance is kind of sparse. I just view them as a natural opportunity to see who's all in and who would rather have the sand between their toes. Like, you are the people that choose to start your week in worship. And we're going to see today that Jesus talks a little bit about those who build their house on the solid rock and those who spend a little too much time on the sand. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, the passage that Lindsay just read for us. We are wrapping up our summer-long study through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is the start of his ministry, was this incredible sermon that Jesus preached to introduce to us and to the hearers in the first century what life is like in the kingdom of God. What will your life look like? What will my life look like if we live our life under the reign and rule of Jesus. And it's uh, one of those sermons, if you've read it before, if you read it from start to finish, it'll take you about 14 minutes, give or take a minute or two. But we have spent the last 14 weeks making our way through this sermon, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, seeing everything that Jesus has to say to his people, because this is the day that Jesus talks about just about everything. It starts in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus gathers a crowd around him. And he tells them, this is how you live a blessed life. This is how you live your best life when you live life with God. We call that the Beatitudes. Then we saw that Jesus says to the crowd, everyday ordinary people, that their life could have value and influence just like salt and light. He says, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He talks to them about what the Old Testament looks like and how it's been fulfilled in Jesus and how we live our life under the authority of God's word. He talked to them about how we handle everyday emotions like anger and lust, how we're faithful to our spouse and faithful in our marriage, how we're people of our word, how we can choose forgiveness instead of retaliation, how we can love people around us, how we can handle these works of righteousness like our giving and like praying and like fasting, how we can overcome anxiety by checking our trust in Jesus. He talked to us about how we can judge others and not judge others. He talked to us about how we pray, about how we live our life, about how we produce good fruit and the kind of teaching we can trust. Jesus covers a lot of ground as he talks about just about everything. And then he ends his sermon, the final words, with these words. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine, the sermon that he just preached, will be like a wise, and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. 
And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. What I want us to say as we get started is Jesus wraps up this sermon. He says that this sermon, these words, this teaching, the word of God is for everyone. Do you notice that at the end of this long, this long sermon where he's talked about just about everything, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, he wants us to understand that this sermon is for everyone because everyone is building their life. Everyone is building something. Now, even as I say that, maybe in the back of your mind, you kind of push back a little bit, think like, I'm not sure if I'm really building my life. Maybe you think like, I'm just getting started in school. When I get to college, that's when I'll start to build my life. Or maybe you think like, in this season, I'm just in college. I'm just having fun. When I get to my first career, that's when I will build my life. Or maybe you're thinking like, I'm just getting started in my career. When I get my first promotion or when I get the, the corner office or the job that I aspire to, that is when I'll start building my life. Or maybe it's, I'm just getting started in my career. I've just kind of achieved this position. It's when I get married or when I have kids or when I have grandkids or when I can see retirement. That is when. I will start building my life. What Jesus is going to show us is that wherever we are in life, we are building our life. That our everyday decisions are determining the direction of our life. And this is a message to be taken seriously by everyone. Whether you're just trying to figure out faith or you're finding your way to God or finding your way back to God or trying to follow God through life, wherever you find yourself with God, this message that we've spent this summer studying, the Sermon on the Mount, everything that follows from Jesus and his ministry is for you because Jesus is always extending an invitation to everyone. Now, I know there are some people that think, like, I don't know if that's true. Like, sometimes they, they, we fall into this trap of thinking Jesus picks and chooses who he wants to, to put in his kingdom, and it's only some of us. But all throughout Scripture, we see that Jesus and those who spent time with Jesus are continuing to reiterate the same point, that Jesus wants everyone to do life with him in the kingdom of God. In fact, maybe the most famous passage in all of Scripture was recorded by a man named John who spent time with Jesus. In John chapter 3, verse 16, he writes this. He says, for God so loved the what? The world. Like, you're in the world, I'm in the world. This is who God loves, that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him, whoever puts their faith in him, should not perish but have eternal life. That the offer is available to everyone. Another one of Jesus' disciples, a guy named Peter, wrote a letter to the church. In he, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he says this. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but it is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Jesus is always extending an invitation to everyone. 
Think about the way this sermon started. I know it's been several weeks, but in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, before Jesus preaches the first word of the sermon, it says he gathers the crowd around him. In fact, Jesus is doing ministry. He's gaining popularity, and he sees this group of people starting to gather, and they've got more questions than they had answers. And so Jesus goes up on a mountain and says, seeing the crowds, everyday, ordinary people, he went up on the mountain, he sat down, and his disciples came to him. And I love the way the sermon starts because it shows us that the message that Jesus Jesus preached was for the disciples. It was for those people who wanted to follow Jesus, who had left much behind to make much of Jesus. But it was also the same message preached to the crowds, to those who are curious, who are just trying to figure out faith. So as we started the sermon, and as we finish the sermon, we want to remind ourselves that this message is for everyone. It's not beyond the reach of anyone, and it's not beneath anyone. The message that Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount, this application-rich text, is for each of us who are just trying to figure out faith. I think I issued a challenge to you several weeks ago. If you're just trying to figure out faith, just pick one of these verses and apply it to your life and see how God shows up. Because when we honor God, God honors our obedience. At the same time, If we're not careful, we can fall into the trap of thinking the Sermon on the Mount is beneath us. Maybe we learned it in Sunday school growing up. Maybe these verses are so familiar, we forget that they can be applied with ever-increasing intensity every day of our life. Jesus says this sermon is for everyone, but it's especially for you and I who spent the summer studying this message. Because here's what I mean. Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine. Everyone who spends their time listening to the Sermon on the Mount, this text is going to be judged based on what they do with this text. And he says there's two options. We can hear the words of Jesus and we can do what they say, or we can hear the words of Jesus and not do what they say. There's two options. I don't know about you, I often fall into the trap of looking for the third option. Anyone else? And I'm not just talking about Jesus, just in life. Like, I'm always looking for the third option. I kind of hate being reduced to two options, this or that. I'm always like, well, is there another way? And I think if we're not careful, we do the same thing with faith. We can hear Jesus say, you've heard my words. You can do what they say or you cannot do them. There's one of two options. And we start looking for the third option. And because it's not there, we just manufacture it on our own. We think, well, I'm going to do some of what Jesus says, or I'm going to do a little bit more than the person next to me of what Jesus says. And then I'm going to feel good about myself, or I'm going to follow Jesus' command here, and I'm going to forget Jesus' command there. I'm going to show up sometimes. I'm going to serve sometimes, but only when it's convenient for me. And here is one of my convictions is that Christianity and following Jesus makes a terrible hobby. You know what I mean? Like the American church sometimes, the average, average, everyday average quote-unquote American Christian, we kind of treat Christianity like it's this hobby. Like we, we, we're kind of excited about it. And we'll pick it up when it seems convenient for us or when there's nothing else going on. But the call to follow Jesus is a call to what? To die to ourselves. It's a call to repentance, a call to say, I'm no longer going to do my life my way. I'm going to do my life your way. And so if we're treating Christianity like it's a hobby, it's a bad hobby. If you're looking for a good hobby, I highly recommend buying a boat, right? Like being the owner of a boat makes a great hobby. It'll make you broke, but it's fun, right? Christianity is an all-in, all-or-nothing 
proposition. And so we have this temptation to take it, take the easy way. And here's what I mean. The second half of that text, we're going to kind of start there and work our way back. Jesus says this, verse 26. He says, and everyone who hears these words of mine, the sermon that I preached and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. We'll talk about that in a minute. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Great was the fall of it. I don't know about you, but I do not want that to be the way my life is described. Because you know people and I know people, and we could say, man, great was the fall of their life. And maybe it's just, I don't want to put that much energy and effort into building something that's going to come tumbling down. Because life takes a lot of energy and life takes a lot of effort. And I don't want to invest that much time, that much energy, and that much effort in building something that's going to fall down. I think it's just how am I wired because I see it in every area of my life. Like I have a four-year-old daughter who's a lot of fun. And one of her favorite things is to play with these like magnetic blocks that she got for a birthday party. And so she likes to build things. And I want to be a good dad. And so I'll get down on the floor and she wants to build things. And I'll say, Brian, what do you want to build? And she'll want to build like a political palatial, she doesn't use the word palatial, but a palatial palace for her Barbies. And so I get down, I open the entire box and we pull all the pieces out and I'm constantly telling her, no, not that way. You just sit over there. I'll build this for you. And we put this entire thing together. And no sooner do we put the, you know, the, the spire on the pillar than she just knocks it down. And I don't care if she's four years old. I'm thinking like, what are you doing? We just spent 30 minutes that we cannot get back building these blocks. And she's just laughing hysterically. And I think, I'm never doing this again. Like, I don't want to build a big toy tower that's going to come tumbling down in just a few minutes. I don't want to invest that much energy and effort. Uh, And somewhere along the way is a lesson to be learned about just spending time with your kids. But I don't like that. And even more so with our life. Like, I don't want to invest that kind of energy and that kind of effort in a life that's going to fall apart in the end. Great is the follow of it. I'm sure that all of us know someone who was seemingly building a spectacular life and suddenly it all just gave way. We talk about things like with Jesus and their family. I was thinking about a guy that uh, when I first started in ministry, it was early, uh, like, 2005, 2006, 2007, and uh, he had built a pretty big uh, um, portfolio of rental properties, and he had like bought houses all over Orlando, and he had a ton of money and drove an incredibly nice car, uh, really let everyone know how successful he was, and uh, he was successful. I didn't realize he had leveraged every dollar he had to build this empire. Well, 2008 came, and the real estate market just imploded, and he sold, lost everything. He didn't sell everything, lost everything, lost the car, lost everything. And I remember then, even as a young man, thinking, like, man, great was the fall. Like, yeah, sure, he, he seemed to have peaked, but, man, he fell hard. Jesus says, we're not just talking about finances. We're talking about people's spiritual life here. Someone who hears my words and does not do what them say, do what they say, they're gonna, they are going to fall flat and spectacular will be the fall and collapse of their life. He's speaking to people who treat Jesus' words like they go in one ear and out the other, who recognize that they heard what Jesus said and willfully chose not to do them. And Jesus says that person is like a foolish man. 
The Greek word is the Greek word moros, which we get the word moron. Like we're not even allowed to say that in our house because we have young ears. But Jesus says the person who hears my words and does not do them, yeah, they're a moron. Like they know a better way. They heard the way from God and chose their way instead. That's foolish. That's moronic. In fact, it's even uh, to describe, the word used to describe like impious, lacking faith or godless. He's saying it's people who heard what God said and chose to be God of their life instead. The question I would ask is when we read this text, why would someone choose this? Why would someone choose this? Do you ever look at someone else's failures and faults and try to figure out why to avoid your own, like to avoid being that problem or that person? Like I'm always like evaluating, like even like every time we drive by a, a car wreck. This week, my wife and I were driving Friday night and there was this massive car wreck on the other side of the road and it was pouring down rain and the windshield wipers were going full blast and I'm like breaking my neck to see what happened. I'm like, Chris, I can't see what happened. Tell me what happened. She's like, it doesn't matter. If you don't look ahead, that's gonna be us. And I was like, oh yeah, good point. Uh, focus on God and the rest kind of takes care of itself. But I'm always trying to learn. Like, what did they do that made a mess of their life? Sometimes I think it's as simple as they just wanted the easy way. Like they knew what God said, but it sounded too difficult. And so they decided to do it their way because it seemed easier. And I think that in part, this is what Jesus had in mind as he's preaching this sermon. You think about it, he's on this hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee and he's envisioning this crowd dreaming about building this beachfront property there on the Sea of Galilee. And some people are going to build houses and they're going to dig down deep and some people are going to show up and they're going to see the sand has been hardened by the sun and it's going to seem like it's a firm foundation and it's going to look like everything would be okay if they just took the easy way. So they're just going to forego the foundation and forego the footers and, and build their house on the sand. And Jesus is saying, like, it looks easy, but when the storm comes and washes the sand away, it's going to lead to ruin. Sometimes it's just easier. And sometimes it's just that we don't want what God wants. And I think that's one of the hardest things to recognize in our lives. I'm always praying, God, please help me see what you see and want what you want because I know me and maybe you know you. Sometimes you know what God says and you know what God wants and the truth is you just don't want what God wants. We're being lured away by the temptations of this world. John, who spent so much time with Jesus and had this sermon in mind, I'm sure, wrote a letter called 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, Jesus, John says this. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then he goes on to say this. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And what John is saying is this. He's warning believers like you and I who have heard the message of Jesus not to fall in love with the way of the world because the way of the world is appealing. And he kind of breaks it down for us. He says it's these, really these three categories, these three temptations that Satan has been using over and over again from the fall of man in the garden. The lust of the flesh. This feels good 
right? Like this, this feels good. So I'm going to go after what feels good for a few minutes and just forget what's coming after it. Or the, the lust of the eyes, the desires of the eye. This looks good. Like this looks more appealing to me. This house built on sand, it looks better, looks easier. Or the pride of life, ultimately just saying, I hear what God says, but I know better than God. I'm more proud. I'm proud. I know. And then he goes on and he says this. He says, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And John's saying, man, there's a way that looks good. And if there's a way that feels good. And there's a way that makes it feel like you know more than God. And you could feel like that for a minute. And you can pursue that for a minute. When it's time, when it's tested by time, it's going to fall flat. Pride of life is ultimately just saying, I think if I'm honest, I know better than God. And even if we wouldn't say it at times, we live it. When we hear what God says, but we decide instead to do what we want to do with who we want to do it with when we want to do it. And we have to look no further than the Sermon on the Mount. We see what God has to say about forgiveness. But sometimes forgiveness doesn't feel good, does it? Like letting people be forgiven for what they've done to us, they haven't even apologized yet. And so we choose to hold a grudge. Or maybe we look through scripture and we know that God has a way for us to choose a spouse to yoke our life to someone who loves God more than they love us. Instead, we would rather choose someone that's more comfortable to cuddle up with on the couch. And so we choose them instead. Or maybe as we're choosing a spouse, we know what God says about purity and how we can pursue holiness as we honor the person we're going to spend the rest of our life with. But let's be honest, something else feels better for a moment. And so we choose that instead. We know what God says about generosity, but we want to hold on to what we have and spend it all or more than we have on ourselves instead. We know what God says about spending time with prayer, starting our day by spending time with him, but we'd rather start our day by scrolling social media. We know what God says about serving, but we'd rather get up, show up, and consume instead. And the list goes on and on, but every single one of us can fall into the trap of thinking that we know better than God. And Jesus, in his grace, simply says, if you think so, you can try that. You can do relationships your way, and you'll see that ultimately they'll end in ruin. We can choose our spouse according to our own wisdom and see when the the spouse chooses themselves because they have no greater commitment than the the commitment to their own comfort and convenience. We can uh, do finances our way and we can see what the pain is like when God removes his hand of protection from the resources he provides for us. We can choose to spend our time on ourselves and see what life is like when we don't prioritize spending time with God. The, The good news is, is that God lets us do whatever we want. He says, everyone hears these words of mine and does not do them. We'll be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Rain fell, the floods came, winds blew and beat against the house, and great was the fall of it. But the really good news is there's a better way. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. Circle that. We'll come back to it in just a minute. He will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. First observation I want to point out is, do you see how the same storm comes on those who hear the word and do them and those who hear the word and don't do them? Like the houses are built next to each other. The same storm is going to come on them. And I think there's something here. If we're not careful, one of the things the enemy can do is sow this seed of doubt in the back of our mind where we start to feel sorry for ourselves. 
And we started to think, man, I've just got it harder than everyone else. If you find yourself at work thinking, like looking around, thinking, man, I just work harder than everyone else and no one recognizes it. We start to feel sorry for ourselves. Or, man, I've just been dealt a difficult hand. And we look at our family compared to someone else's family. Look at your, you know, whatever, your financial situation. And this is a, it's a breeding ground for the enemy to work because storms are coming whether or not we are faithful. And here's something I am learning. I am learning to be thankful for difficult days because they help me determine whether or not I'm remaining dependent on God. That's a work in progress, but when things are difficult, I'm beginning to recognize, man, am I dependent on God? Am I founded on the rock when we hear from Jesus and do what he says? The other thing is I find this such good news because it means I don't have to figure out my own life. And I've shared this with you before, but, but truly, like, I don't take responsibility for my own life. Now, I do take responsibility for how close I follow Jesus. I take responsibility for the way I choose to live my life, but I trust that Jesus is determining the direction of my life, which means if Jesus is in control and I'm, I'm hearing his word and doing what he says, like, I don't have to take, uh, or I don't have to figure out my own marriage. I'm in it's playing this role in my marriage, but I found a girl who loves the Lord more than she could ever love me. And when we have difficult days, we just dig down closer to Jesus. So I don't have to figure out my own marriage. I don't have to figure out how to do money. I don't have to try to figure out where's the best place to put my money. I know that I give off the top. I save some so I can live below my means. I am generous with the resources God has given me. I try to live within my calling And then I live on the rest because I trust that God is in control, that if I'll follow him, he'll provide for what I need. Not always what I want, but for what I need. I don't have to try to trust God with relationships because I know that if I'm quick to forgive and honor God, the relationships that God has put in my life will go the distance. I don't have to figure out my own righteousness. I don't have to get bogged down anymore trying to figure out how to live my life because if I'm walking close enough with God, He is my righteousness. I don't have to figure out my career and my calling. That in itself is overwhelming. Like, where do I go? What do I do? We can trust that God is the foundation when we are quick to follow Jesus. I want to share a passage of scripture with you. Uh, Stop me if you've heard it, but this is one of those passages. It's one of those parables that just preaches to my soul. It's found in John chapter 10. Let me know if this sounds familiar. Jesus gathers a crowd around him. Some of the crowd that is there are his disciples. They are people who are eager to hear what Jesus has to say. They're following Jesus closely at this point in his ministry, and they're all in, and everything Jesus says, they're just looking for clarification, clinging to every word that comes from his mouth. Some of the crowd that's gathered there, they are Jesus' enemies. They do not like Jesus, what Jesus has to say. They are uh, confident that they know God better than Jesus, who is God, knows God. And so they're looking for a reason to trap Jesus. And then some of the people gathered around again are those who are just curious and they're trying to figure out this rabbi who says he's the Christ and the Messiah. What will life look like if we do give up our life to follow this good teacher? And so Jesus says to the crowd in John chapter 10, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of his sheep. And what Jesus is doing constantly throughout his ministry is he's clearly differentiating between his way and the world's way, between God and the enemy. 
between good and evil, between what he has for us and what the world is drawing us to. In every step of the way, he's saying there's a decision to make. Who are we going to listen to? Who are we going to follow? And then he says, to him, the gatekeeper opens. And so he positions himself as the good shepherd. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and his sheep follow him for they know his voice. And so in this illustration, Jesus is saying to the crowds, he says, like, you are like sheep. And without getting into the cultural context, that is just not a compliment because sheep are not that smart. But he says, the good news is when you are not that smart, you have a good shepherd. And here's what I have come back to over and over again is the good shepherd goes before his sheep that he gives us his word, that he leads us and so that we can follow him as we're trying to figure out faith, we're trying to figure out finances, we're trying to figure out forgiveness, we're trying to figure out relationships, we're trying to figure out marriage, we're trying to figure out who to marry, we're trying to figure out our career, we're trying to figure out our calling, we're trying to figure out how to raise kids, we're trying to figure out how to make disciples. The, the sheep just follow the direction the good shepherd has already gone. Which begs the question, like, how do we know his voice? Like, how do we know his voice? Because the next verse says this. It says, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. And so Jesus is recognizing there are multiple voices speaking into your life. There's the voice of the enemy who's trying to sow seeds of distrust in you, that God is not good, that uh, he does not want good for you, that your way is better than his way. He's always telling us that lie over and over again. Lust the eyes, lust the flesh, the pride of life. And then there's the good shepherd saying, I am the good shepherd. Well, how do we know his voice? There's no substitute for time spent with Jesus. And I mean that, like as someone that is is excited every week to share God's word with you, like it's not my voice I want you hearing day in and day out. Like we try to organize the structure of our Sunday morning worship gatherings with these rhythms that you can repeat on a daily basis. I don't know if you've recognized this, but we sing a couple songs as we get started. The first thing you do when you open your eyes in the morning is you just open your eyes and you praise God. Thank you, God, that you've given me another day. And when we spend time with God, it it leads us to a time of confession. We do confession corporately because we do confession as individuals throughout the day. When we spend time with God, I mean, we recognize that we fall short. But then we remember through communion, the body and the blood of Jesus, who he is and what he's accomplished for us. And so before we put our feet on the ground in in the morning, we've recognized who God is. We recognize that we fall far short, but he's done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And then we dive right into scripture reading and the study, of, study and application of his word. We spend time praying every day so that we can hear the direction the good shepherd is leading us. We hear his words and we do what they say. And then we respond in worship. The rest of our day is a day given to God in worship. As you go about taking the kids to school, as you go to, to work, as you come home from work, as you do dinner, as you relax and wind down after dinner. We do that to worship God. The question I'd put before you is, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Do we recognize the voice of God? Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, hearing God's voice, hearing God's word, knowing his word is a prerequisite for following him. We can't follow the good shepherd if we don't know his words or recognize his voice. And then verse six in this, in this parable says this figure of speech or this parable, this illustration that Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. I just love that. 
Like I love as we read through scripture and we see that other people struggle to understand Jesus just as much as we do. You ever read the Bible and you're trying to hear what he has to say and you think this sounds so profound. I have no idea what it means. You ever feel like that when you read the Bible? You're in good company. Those listening to Jesus in person in the first century did. Often we just keep reading. Just keep reading for context. So many questions will answer themselves. Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I'm the door of the sheep. Okay, you don't get the illustration about me being the good shepherd. Like, there's a sheep pen there. I'm the way in and I'm the way out. Is that basic enough for you guys to understand? All who came before me, they're thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be safe. He will go in. He will come out. He will find pasture. That life is lived when life is lived with the good shepherd. Verse 10, the thief, the enemy, Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Here's the thing. If you're here today and you're like thinking through the Sermon on the Mount, man, there's a lot there. If I surrender my life to what Jesus preaches in this sermon, I'm going to have to change a lot about my life, like you and me both, right? We are constantly bringing our life under the reign and rule of Jesus. Here's the promise of God from start to finish. When we live life with God, God wants good things for us. God wants good things for his people. Now, as Jesus' own words have said, it doesn't mean that we're not going to go through storms. It doesn't mean there's not going to be difficult days. But when we live life with God, we live life founded on God, and we live life with God. Jesus says, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. And then he ends this illustration as clearly as can be. He says, if you've got any confusion, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, there's something in this text that we miss at first glance. In fact, I was this week until I recognized what's taking place here. When the Jews gathered around Jesus in the first century first heard this sermon, and he was talking about storms, I don't think they were thinking the everyday storms of life. Now, that's real, and the application is real. They would have heard the judgment of God. They would have heard what is coming someday when everything will be revealed. He's talking about like building a house on the rock and building a house on the, on the sand and they, the houses are built next to each other. They live in, they're in close proximity. They look a lot like each other. No one can tell the difference as they pass by walking along the beach. But when the storms come, when everything is revealed like it will be at the day of judgment, that's when we're going to know who built their house on the rock. The good news is the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. If we build our life on Jesus, it will withstand the storms of life and it will withstand the storm of God's wrath poured out on those who did not hide their life in Jesus. Now here's the truth. This illustration Jesus gives in the first century, it lands close to home for us living in 21st century Florida, doesn't it? Because we know as much as they knew about storms. Like just this week, we know a lot about storms. Like, We've known so much about storms that I didn't know there was a storm coming this week until after church last Sunday. And I promise, like, I didn't know. We were at dinner uh, with my family, and my sister said, so what are y'all doing to prepare for the storm? And I said, what storm? And she said, Adam, there's a hurricane coming for us. And I looked on the app, and I was like, it looks like it's going north. We should be okay. Sure enough, I was right. We know a little bit about storms, right? But at the end of the day, the only thing that is really predictable about storms is that storms are coming. And we know 
It's fall in Florida. So while the rest of the country is watching the leaves change color in fall, we're bracing for impact because storms are coming. So many storms come that it's hard to keep track of them all. We might not even remember Hurricane Michael from 2018. You remember Hurricane Michael is just like another name storm? It was the first Category 5 storm to make landfall in Florida since Hurricane Andrew decimated Miami in 1992. And if you remember, it slammed the Florida panhandle with devastating winds and rains. In fact, I want to show you a picture. This is from Mexico Beach, Florida when Hurricane Michael basically wiped the entire beach town away. And I saw that, that uh, picture and my like, heart just sunk. You know why? Because I was thinking about how much money it costs to build a house on the coast in Florida these days. And these people probably spent their entire life trying to build houses that were left in ruin. All of their fortune, all of their effort. Maybe these were vacation homes. They put their, their, their trust that, when, that someday when they retire, they would leave the godforsaken north and come to Florida. And in an instant, they were wiped away. And then what do you think stood out to me more than anything else? It was this house. I mean, these houses are standing, but they're dilapidated. They would be torn down. This house looks like it just endured a Florida afternoon rainstorm. And I thought, like, when I saw the picture, I was like, man, I got to know about that house, because that's, that's different. And I found an article that described this house. It was called the Sand Palace. Two guys built this. They lived in Cleveland, Tennessee. And like I suggested, they, this was their dream. They were gonna, it was a family. They were, gonna, they were gonna treat it as a family vacation home. And then one of the guys was gonna retire here. And so Hurricane Michael hit in 2018. They finished this house in 2017. And they said, we built this house to withstand the big one. We had no idea that the big one would come so quickly, but they spared no expense. Hear what they said. They said, as we built this house, the house was fashioned from poured concrete using reinforced steel cables and rebar with additional concrete bolstering the corners of the house. The space under the roof was minimized so the wind could not sneak underneath of it or lift it off. The home's elevation on high pilings was meant to keep it above the surge of seawater. Walls were installed to break away so if a wall did give way, it wouldn't destroy the rest of the house. The pilings were driven down 40 feet into the ground. The, the, the builders uh, paid attention to the screws that were used. Every detail was predetermined to withstand the big storm. Hurricane, or hurricane codes required that houses be built in Florida to withstand winds between 120 and 150 miles an hour. These guys built this house to withstand surpassing 250 miles an hour. I wonder if it was a little bit like Noah building the ark. Everyone looking around saying, man, you could save some time and you could save some money but they installed a camera in their home and watched from the safety of Cleveland, uh, Cleveland, Tennessee as Hurricane Michael swept across Mexico Beach. And they said one by one, they could watch the other houses be washed away or blown away by the wind. And sure enough, their house was still standing. And if they were willing to go through that much energy and effort to build a vacation home, sparing no expense in the construction process, going above and beyond to make sure it was grounded deep. How much more should we do as we follow Jesus? It shows us a very visible illustration. What does life look like when life is lived with Jesus, founded on our faith in him? And here's the thing, and maybe it's just the preacher in me, but you know what else I noticed? Not just the sand palace, 
but the everyday ordinary house directly behind you that also withstood the storm. And I just think like that's a perfect picture of what I want us to walk away from this Sermon on the Mount with. Yes, we build our house on the firm foundation, but in doing so, we are the salt and the life light of the world. And we have no idea who will be saved because of us. That it's not about trying to figure out our life, but who can find Jesus because we have founded our life on him. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the good news of the gospel, of the grace extended to us through the person and the work of Jesus. Father, we hold in our hands the Sermon on the Mount in its entirety. You preached it from start to finish in about 14 minutes, but we have spent a significant amount of time studying this text because, Father, we want to take seriously the words that you set before your people. Father, we don't want to be like the everyday average person looking for the easy way, but we want to do the hard work. We want to be discipled by you. Father, I pray that as we go home today, as we go through the rest of this week, as we take this text with us, Father, that your Holy Spirit would not stop speaking to our soul. But Father, as we experience those everyday emotions of anger and lust, the desire to go ahead and get ahead and to retaliate and to to dedicate our time to faithfully following you, Father, that your Holy Spirit would just bring to mind these words that you've saved for us, that we might live a life that looks more like you today than we did yesterday. Father, we pray that as a church, that this is what would set us apart, that we've founded our life on Jesus. And we are quick to extend an invitation to those following us to follow to God, the good shepherd that wants to give us life abundantly. Father, I pray that you would protect us from the storms of life as much as is possible as we live in a fallen world. But Father, I pray that we would put our faith and our trust in you so when that judgment storm comes, we would stand with confidence on the firm foundation of our faith in Jesus. It is in his name that we pray today. Amen. Let's stand and sing.